Hi everyone, uh, my name is Rahul. And I'm Barak. And welcome to our knowledge video on acute heart failure. Um, so the diagnosis and management of acute heart failure is a very common interview question. Uh, it can be by itself or also actually part of another question stem. So for example, managing ACS, arrhythmias, valvular diseases, and having an element of acute heart failure with it. So this knowledge video will focus on the key things that one needs to know to tackle any potential question about acute heart failure. Uh, the first thing to say is what's the relevance of acute heart failure? Well, it has an in-hospital mortality of between four and 10%. So it's a, a significant thing to be able to manage well. Um, what we'll first talk about are acute causes of decompensated heart failure to be aware of. And there's a fantastic mnemonic that I personally use called CHAMPIT, which will cover most of what you need to know. So we'll just go through that. And the importance of understanding the causes are it allows you to take a good history following this framework. So uh, the CE is essentially coronary artery disease. So you're looking for uh, causing, um, so an acute MI, for example, causing decompensated heart failure. So you're looking for factors in the history, such as cardiovascular risk factors for ischemic heart disease, a history of angina, ECG changes consistent with ischemia, and a very classic presentation to be aware of is a patient with a history of angina who suddenly presents an acute pulmonary edema, which is often caused by left main stem disease. The H is a hypertensive episode. So you'd be looking for evidence of hypertension when you see the patient, but also evidence of end organ damage, so retinopathy, nephropathy, LVH on an echo, or sorry, on an ECG and an echo. Um, a is arrhythmias, so a tachyobradyarrhythmia causing decompensated heart failure. M is your mechanical acute causes, such as a dissection, ACS, which we've kind of covered in the, in the coronary artery disease section, valvular ruptures, chest trauma, infective endocarditis. Uh, P, is, P is for PE or pregnancy. I is infections. T is tamponade. And then a couple of causes that are not covered by the mnemonic, just to be aware about. Uh, are severe anemia, uh, metabolic or hormonal derangements, such as thyroid, adrenal, DKA um, derangements. Uh, so some drugs such as NSAIDs, steroids, anything negatively inotropic, toxins such as drugs and alcohol. Um, and they're your main causes, if you're ever going to see someone with acute heart failure, to work through to work out what the underlying acute cause is. Now, there are important differential diagnoses to be aware of, of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema to consider. And in an interview scenario, it's important to demonstrate that you're aware of those and not kind of shoehorned into the cardiac route of things. So an AKI uh, and uh, can cause pulmonary edema and particular risks are those with uh, renal artery stenosis and acute respiratory distress syndrome um, is another differential cause of acute pulmonary edema. So they're your causes uh, to be aware of. Um, before we move on to how one would kind of work up and investigate someone with acute heart failure, anything else um, you, you would add, Valerie, or any other causes, some, any weird things? There's, there's, there's lots of uh, odd causes, actually. No, I think that's really, really good. I think just, as I said, have a, have a good structure. I think the key thing to get across to your interviewer is that you're not going to take a an exhaustive history but you are going to just try and rule out any acute reversible causes um for this acute decompensation they may already have 
a pre-existing heart failure, chronic heart failure, but you're looking to see if there's any acute reversible things. So I think to highlight that, uh, and then you can go through um, a few of them, but uh, yeah, you don't want, as well, you just don't want to make, make the interviewer think that you're just there to take a very, very long history. So just caveat your history, I think, with that, and then go into it. Because actually, I think Champ is a fantastic mnemonic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really good ways to think about the things that you want to be ruling out in your head as you go through the patient because you know if they find out they are very hypertensive well that's the thing you're also going to try and treat as well um if you find out they've gosh they've got a PE and they've decompensated do you going to try and treat the PE so these are really important things when managing acute heart failure yeah exactly and I think um that that brings us nicely to uh, working up someone with acute heart failure where you'd start with the history and examination well you might preface by saying so I'd be assessing the patient trying to um, ascertain if there are any uh, coronary um, or uh, hypertensive causes arrhythmic causes mechanical causes um, and so on you, you can use that champit framework to show that you're essentially focusedly assessing a patient so your history is really based on the um, trying to elicit symptoms of heart failure, uh, comorbidities, uh, relevant kind of drug and social history, but also getting in that Champit uh, framework. It's really um, nice, actually. I didn't really appreciate the Champit. Actually, the first four cover the vast majority, don't they? So yeah, coronary disease, hypertension, arrhythmias, and mechanical uh, mechanical meat causes. And then the less likely causes are the PMEIT, PE pregnancy, infections, and tamponade. Uh, and, if, and toxins you can put there. I mean, that's a not unreasonable thing to say that you're going to try and cover in your assessment. Yeah. Um, and then you'd move on to your examination, which links to your history. And, and you'd want to be doing things like assessing their blood pressure, looking for a hypertensive cause, um, assessing their hemodynamic stability, how much oxygen are they requiring, if any. Um, and the key things that you'd want from your examination are A, to assess their fluid balance. So ascertaining is the patient wet or are they dry? and also their peripheral perfusion, are they warm or cold? And that will therefore allow you to subsequently appropriately treat the patient. Following on from your history and examination, you'd uh, perform some bedside tests, so an ECG in the first instance, to investigate for any causes. So picking up any tachy or bradyarrhythmias, evidence of acute coronary syndrome, is there evidence of LVH suggestive of hypertension or cardiomyopathy? Is their right heart strain suggestive of a, an acute PE? Um, you'd also want to, and, and subsequently from that, you may wish to place the patient on a cardiac monitor and, and uh, ascertain more kind of longer uh, rhythm control, or sorry, rhythm um, monitoring. Um, following on from that, you'd want to perform a chest X-ray uh, and you may actually do a lung ultrasound with that. Um, and you'd be on the chest x-ray, you'd be looking for those classic signs of interstitial shadowing, suggestive of pulmonary edema, curly B lines, upper lobe diversion, pleural effusions, cardiomegaly, the, the basic signs of heart failure. You'd also want to perform some blood tests, so your routine blood tests, your full blood count, kidney function, liver function, infection markers, looking for acute precipitants, but also looking, uh, wanting a baseline level of function. You'd want to do a BMP, uh, which itself has quite a high negative predictive value, um, but be aware that it can be not raised in acute heart failure states. Uh, if the history is suggestive, you'd want to perhaps perform a troponin and a D-dimer looking for pre uh, precipitants uh, of the heart failure. 
And you'd also want to do an ABG uh, if they're requiring oxygen. So looking for evidence of type one or type two respiratory failure. And also that would give you a lactate, which would be a good marker for peripheral perfusion. And finally, you'd uh, want to perform a transthoracic echo to assess the cardiac function, but also to try and elicit any other underlying structural causes which may be contributing. So that is your basic initial workup for anyone with acute heart failure. Um, uh, we're next going to talk about treatments, but anything to add before we move on? Um, no, I suppose just to uh, carry on from our previous uh, video, again, just a very important thing to ascertain is what their current weight is and what their normal weight is, because mm. uh, that tells you how much extra fluid they have with one, with one extra kilo uh, being one litre of fluid. So it tells you how much fluid they need to lose uh, as you diurese them. And it's quite a good marker to say when you, uh, when you present the patient to your consultant, say that they're 10 kilograms, this patient with acute heart failure is 10 kilograms uh, over his normal dry weight. Mm. Already you know exactly what's going on. So yeah, and that's the only other thing I'd uh, uh, add and yeah, a good fluid assessment is very important. Fantastic. Okay. So next we'll talk about treatments of acute heart failure. And um, the kind of, there are two key kind of first line therapies, uh, which are the first one is oxygen, aiming for SATs of greater than 94%. And that can be delivered via. Look, can I just, can I, actually, sorry, I just meant to, I meant to add actually one thing I thought about is that uh, just gave you like a good, a really good five out of five point in the history you might want to just ascertain um their kind of comorbidities and medical background and if they've had any thoughts about escalation plans because that will that will determine how far you go with their treatment uh, and it really gives you a, an idea of what you can and can't what you shouldn't shouldn't be doing for this patient uh, and most candidates probably wouldn't Think like that. I mean, I, to be honest, I just forgot it myself and I just remembered it. So um, it's an easy one to forget, but a really good point. So if you can bring that in, if they shows a nice holistic. Yeah, view. agreed. Something you would do in real life, but you may forget to say in an interview. Um, yeah, great point. Um, so uh, the first tenant of treatment is essentially oxygen. If they're if the patient is hypoxic, so aiming for saturate oxygen saturation of greater than ninety four percent. So delivering that through the appropriate means, be it a nasal cannula, a face mask, and you can then, if needed, give positive pressure ventilation through high flow nasal cannula or CPAP slash NIV, depending on the type of respiratory failure the patient is in. Uh, diuretic therapy is, a, is another mainstay of acute heart failure treatment. So if a patient is diuretic naive, the ESC actually advocate relatively low doses of IV fruzamide, about 10 to 20 milligrams, and then a reassessment of response. Although practically, uh, as I'm sure you will have seen, higher doses are often used. And this is all kind of, I, I personally have seen different practices in different locations, but it's all, if you're gonna go for lower doses, it's all about assessing response quickly. Um, if patients are established on diuretic therapy, um, again, people advocate different approaches, but a widely used approach is typically to double the oral dose um, and convert it to IV. So if someone's on 20 milligrams oral afruzamide, you may go for IV 40 stat. But remember, this is all patient-centered and, and very much dependent on the clinical context. 
to assess then, because then it's important to assess for the efficacy of diuresis at the acute stage, we have a, a few different options. So one is to monitor the urine output, aiming for roughly 100 to 150 mils in the first six hours. Uh, and you can also use a, a spot urinary sodium around two to six hours post initiation of diuresis, aiming for around 50 to 70 uh, as a marker. If the diuretic was to fail, your options are to potentially increase the dose or add synergistic diuretic therapy, such as a thiazide-like diuretic, such as metolazole. Um, another option, um, more as a second line, is vasodilator therapy, i.e. GTN uh, therapy, which reduces afterloads and preload with venous return. And a practical point to, to mention here is that ensuring that the dose of GTN is up titrated and not left as it often is done at the starting dose of 0.5 mils a kilo per hour. Um, so making sure that that's up titrated uh, and, and showing that you're aware of that. Um, other important points to note, ensuring the patient is on VTE prophylaxis, uh, opiates have, have uh, kind of, it's have been given, um, and they're used to relieve uh, breathlessness and anxiety and that air hunger. However, interestingly, analysis has shown that the use of morphine is, has actually been associated with an increased frequency of mechanical ventilation, prolonged hospital stays and increased mortality. So actually, opiate use in heart failure is generally not recommended. But again, it's a very patient by patient decision. And it is an option for those that are significantly breathless and have that air hunger symptom. Um, that's your kind of basic management. And then uh, to finish, we'll talk about just briefly about second line therapies in the case of cardiogenic shock. Before we do that, um, Barak, any, anything to, to add in terms of the treatment side? Um, no, I think with, whether it really nicely, again, I think it's quite nice to preface the, if you can tell the interviewer your rationale for what you're doing, so your kind of targets. So if you could say, you know, I'm aiming to acutely diurese this patient. Uh, so, you know, you said all the things in terms of stabilizing, then you could say, my target is to aim to lose you know, 0.5 to a kilogram um, per day. And I'm going to use the appropriate diuretics to do it. So I could then, I'll use Furizomide to begin with, and I can consider adding thiazide-like diuretics as needed, paying close, atten close attention to their user needs would be completely reasonable. And then I think that's one side of things. So the way I kind of think of it is, that's what I'm doing with the diuretics. Then I say, um, also, whilst I'm doing that, I know that um, asymptomatics are acutely prognostic uh, in, in acute heart failure. So I try and establish them on asymptomatic therapy um, with a nod to their, both their using needs and their blood pressure. Uh, and then after that, later on down the line, I would think about adding these blockers because it shows that you're not just thinking about managing the acute heart failure, but you're also trying to establish them. You're knowing about you're showing just your knowledge about establishing on therapies. So that's the only thing I'd kind of pepper into this. And it kind of gives them an idea. And then idea that you're actually a very good candidate and knows how to manage these kind of things. And then you can also talk about, you know, managing them with CPAP and NIV and GTN as needed. So yeah, that's a really good point. And I think this, this will be, this is a relatively common station to come up. Yeah. Um, and I think if you if you get asked it, you need to reel this information off. Um, yeah. That that would be the expected standard um, to have. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we'll talk about second line therapies. Again, as I, as I mentioned, we won't go into excessive detail here, but some awareness is needed that they exist. So uh, inotropes or vasopressors in the case of cardiogenic shock uh, and being aware that they can cause things such as arrhythmias and ischemia. Renal replacement therapy is an option in, in uh, cases where they're diuretic unresponsive. And then you have your mechanical circulatory support. So acutely, uh, what can be used is an intra-aortic balloon pump, essentially a balloon inserted via a venous catheter, typically the femoral vein that sits in the descending aorta and inflates in diastole, which increases coronary perfusion and deflates in systole, allowing cardiac outflow. And then you also have things that can be used acutely, such as an impeller ventricular support system, essentially a flow pump placed across the aortic valve that aspirates blood from the left ventricle and ejects it into the ascending aorta. Uh, and then further kind of even more advanced things are things like ECMO. We won't go into uh, more detail in this video as it's beyond the scope of the knowledge you'd be expected for the interview. So that's a bit of a touch on, on kind of more advanced therapies. And as mentioned in the previous video, being aware that actually when these things might be indicated and when to escalate um, uh, patients uh, as a cardiology registrar is, is what you'd be expected to be aware of, knowing that actually this patient is wet and cold, um, they're in cardiogenic shock, they'll need um, higher therapies. Um, yeah, no, I think I completely agree. I think the, yes, it's just no, knowing that a transplant centre and the various support they can offer in terms of impeller and LV assist devices and ECMO is an option. Uh, I think just mentioning it is more than enough. Um, and your point about um, inotropes, I suppose we did touch upon this in one of the previous videos, but just to reiterate, um, isolated right ventricular failure, for example, in a setting with an MI, um, generally respond better. Acute private, this is acute right ventricular failure, responds better to filling, so they need fluids, whereas acute left ventricular failure um, responds better to inotropes. Um, so that's just a thing on acute RV and acute LV failure um, when you're thinking about uh, managing this. Um, and yeah, your point about the inotropes, so if someone's got pre-existing heart failure, they might choose to use it instead of uh, traditional um, inotropes uh, such as adrenaline um, or NORAD, we might use things such as dobutamine uh, and dopamine as inotropes to try and help increase renal fusion. Because I think you think about everything, the whole point of everything we're trying to do here is increase uh, renal fusion and increase uh, loss of fluid via the kidneys and bring them back further on the Frank Starling curve. Um, so if you have that in your mind, everything you're doing with half it, you will never go far wrong. Um, could you bring Frank Starling? I think if you're, if you're happy enough talking about Frank Starling curve, you can say that's rationale behind what you're doing. It's definitely not a must, but if it falls off, if it comes natural to you to talk about, then by all means do. I think most cardiologists are, especially the older school ones, are very happy uh, hearing basic physiology principles being used in therapy. So... Mm. Uh, I don't know what you think about that. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it's if you feel comfortable using that, there's there's no harm. Um, 
yeah, it, it shows you, you're practicing from a more physiological based approach, which, you know, there's debate about it, but I, I personally think is a, is a nicer way to practice. Yeah. Um, good. So, yeah. Okay. I think that covers acute heart failure really, really nicely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, please see our associated uh, clinical scenario for, for a scenario related to heart failure. Thank you for listening.